I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What could go right? For this installment, I'm speaking with Jim and Deb Fallows, who have written a best-selling book called Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. Jim and Deb have together and separately have had long careers in media and writing. Uh, Jim Fallows was the national correspondent for The Atlantic, still is, for more than 35 years. He was the editor of U.S. News & World Report. He's written multiple books, has won the National Magazine Award, a National Book Award. He was, once upon a time, Jimmy Carter's speechwriter in the 1970s. And he's written this book with his wife, Deborah Fallows, who has a Ph.D. in linguistics. She's the author of two previous books, including one about China, where they both lived for years. And their recent book is the product of flying in, uh, in their small plane to town after town. They visited 25 cities and towns and another 25 uh, less intensively and have brought to life stories of local renewal and local efforts to change the script of decline or change the script of disruption and reinvent their communities. And what they found, as they will talk about, is that there is a whole lot more reinvention, reimagining, recreating than we perceive and know from our national discussion, which tends to focus on the drama, it tends to focus on the dysfunction, it tends to focus on the chaos. And lost in that noise and the fray are all these stories that point in a rather different and in many cases more hopeful direction but also just stories of people who are focused on improving their lives and those of their communities and are not part of that drama and are not so interested in it. So with that, let's speak with Jim and Deb Fallows about Our Towns. So here we are with James and Deborah Fallows, or just to make it easier for everybody, including myself, Jim and Deb, who's incredible book. Uh, first of all, is the product of much more work, travel, and energy than I've ever spent on anything in my entire life. So just kudos for that at the outset. You both have far more patience and, and willingness to go places with diligence and go back to them than most of us ever have. I have a, a maybe a question that you don't get as much, or maybe you do. You both spent a long time in China before you wrote this book and observed the middle period of China's jet-propelled, no pun intended, Jim, given the work you've done, <laughs> growth over those years before you came back to travel around the United States and do this book. Did that experience inform the experience in the United States? Are there parallels between what you saw in China and the kind of 
multiplicity of local regional stories that are divergent from the national story that we tell ourselves? To me, there were sort of a tactical level and a strategic level hangover of the China experience to the U.S. experience. So the tactical level or operational fact was that we did spend a lot of our time, our years in China out on the road just because it was so interesting and so different from downtown Shanghai and Beijing where we were, were living and so informative. But in China, the dynamic was usually people in the localities were doing whatever they could get away with, you know, out of the view of the central government. And in principle, there wasn't any idea of federalism there. The idea was the central government was setting the directions, and the further away you were from Beijing, the more leeway you had. And thus, uh, Shenzhen, for example, in the far south can be a lot more freewheeling than some places right uh, Tianjin or some places right next to, to Beijing. So it was interesting as to, to contrast the texture of the U.S. versus that sort of farther from the capital, the further way the, the emperor is in China. I think the other thing which was much on my mind is that over the decades, my main interest has been the American saga, the American drama. Is the U.S. going to, to make it? And we were living in Japan. That was the question. I think seeing the things which were both impressive and limiting in China reinforced my sense that the ingredient the U.S. had in the long run was precisely its dynamism and inclusiveness and openness to experimentation and the federal model and all these things. So I think I, in my American studies mode, wanted to see, is it still this way in the interior of the U.S.? Deb, over to you. Yeah, so definitely China was an impetus for us starting this project because we had spent four years traveling all around China to the hinterlands um, in a not very glamorous way to a lot of small towns. The mood was set for us to do a similar kind of thing in the U.S., and we came back feeling kind of out of touch from America. And so applying the same kind of lifestyle travel that we did in China was a really good translator. The other underlying sentiment from all those years in China that I think carried over really well for us was this sense in China that contradictory things were simultaneously true. It's such a big country with so many contradictory things going on at the same time, like incredibly rich, incredibly poor, very traditional, very modern, socialist and capitalist, that our brains were kind of wired to think that there might not be a single answer for how things were going in America too, but there could be contradictory things happening at the same time that weren't necessarily explainable simply. Those two different mindset that we came into this project with were holdovers from our experience in China. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, the nature of the book that you wrote is to show just this incredible variety of stories, right, of local renewal, challenges being met, how communities, how our towns across the United States are confronting their own challenges and have been in ways that are rarely publicly known beyond their own borders. Jim, you and I have talked about this in terms of the media and the mainstream media, which you have been a part of for decades, that as much as it's broadcast, right, it, it in today's world, it's incredibly narrow cast in that the amount of actual stories that are told ends up being de minimis. Do you feel like it's always been the case, though? I mean, have we always overlooked, as Deb says, the the variety of stories, because we have a really difficult time holding 
multiple truths to be simultaneously true, particularly if they seem to contradict? We're seeing the recent intensification of longstanding, even eternal trends. The reason that there's the saying of man bites dog being a news story is because it's only, it's the atypical, which always has been by definition part of the news. You don't read about the planes that land safely every day. You read about the one that crashes, etc. As you and I have discussed in various other ways, something has happened now to make a difference in degree that's become a difference of kind where people really do think the surrounding world is in worse shape than its objectively serious problems would indicate. There are objectively serious problems for the U.S. and for the world. There are economic uh, extremes and injustices. There are law enforcement injustices. There are environmental crises. There are a million long list of things. The natural tendency of the media and proper tendency to highlight those things has somehow made people think that any localized welfare is kind of this feudal island that has to be protected from a dark ages surrounding hostile environment, which both makes people more sort of nervous and clutching and ungenerous than they might otherwise be, and reduces the sense of momentum of people being part of something larger. You know, the trends in the media over the last generation dealing with a certain kind of technology, dealing with the pressures on local newspapers uh, in particular. All of these have intensified the trend. It's a long-standing issue with the media that has become a problem of governance now that people think the world outside their direct experience is even worse than it actually is. I wonder, though, I mean, Deb, on this idea of simultaneous realities, right, that Unemployment could be good or bad in general, but it could be good or bad in specific in ways that are completely contrary to the general norm. So you guys spent some time in uh, in Sioux Falls in South Dakota and also North Dakota. Like those areas during the worst of the financial crisis, I don't think ever saw unemployment rates above 5%, even as the national number was 10 or 12%. So whatever story you would tell there, and it was because of fracking, it was because of other things. But whatever the local story was, wasn't really consistent with the national story. But the national story is the only one that we called ours, right, that we said was us. When you talk to people about this, is their experience just the one of, oh, I hate Congress, but my congressman is fine? Let me answer that a slightly different way. So we live in Washington, D.C., which is, I, I don't need to explain that to <laughs> anyone, <laughs> what the moods and the sentiments are here. It's, it's just overwhelming as a place to live right now in a very negative and very intense way, and I say that after living here for two-thirds of our life. I think there's a different sense of balance from the picture of life in America, maybe in, in Washington, D.C., and maybe other big East Coast cities, and maybe very plugged-in city, compared with most of the places where we spent time on, on the travels for this book, which was small towns, medium-sized towns all over the country, a lot of rural places, where the balance of how you think about life is more tilted toward what's going on in my backyard or in my neighborhood or in my town or my county or maybe even my state. But the national picture, while it's there, it's much more there in the background and not as all-consuming as it is for us whenever we came back to Washington, D.C., because you just couldn't get away from it. I think that's one thing, so I kind of hate to generalize about the national mood of our lives in the country. But yes, on the other hand, you're, you're right. 
um, another alternate, another kind of <laughs> truth here, that there was a separation in people's minds, I think, of what was going on nationally and what was going on locally. And maybe it's a cognitive dissonance, maybe it's an ability to compartmentalize those two facets of your life, but it feels different when we're not in our hometown and compared with when we're in other places. Jim. And can I pile on one more point to that, which is I think people can, they're affected by their sense both of, of agency and control and also of progress. I think it's from, you know, the famous line from Charles Dickens about whether, you know, happiness is a certain number of uh, an income and certain shillings, you know, plus one pence and happiness is the same income, you know, minus one pence or expenses exceeding it. And you have a sense of moving in the right direction or the wrong direction regardless of where you are in absolute position. And when it comes to most of the localities we saw, whether it was in the Plain States in, in uh, Sioux Falls and South Dakota or in Mississippi or in upstate uh, New York or Pennsylvania or Erie, Pennsylvania, where they have lots of uh, industrial issues, the sense of direction for people in most places on most issues was positive, that opioids were a terrible problem, the worst problem we saw, but people were devising some different responses, and that downtowns had been hollowed out over the past generation, but people were finding ways to revive them. And so I think an awareness of local-level traction of agency control and slow but positive movement as a, uh, at the local level as opposed to the sense of just sort of helplessness an inability to do anything, and each day worse than the previous one, the national level and sometimes international, that may account for the different um, perspectives we saw. Not only do people feel an agency and an ability to take control and, and do something and be effective and have an impact in their lives in the towns, but there's also this element of accountability that kind of keeps you on the straight and narrow and is part of that focus. Um, when you go out of your house every morning to pick up the paper, take out the trash, go to the grocery store, drive your kids to school, you're going to see people you have to deal with all day every day in your community. Um, so you, I think there's a subliminal sense of I better behave, someone's watching, or also these are the people I work with to work out our issues in our town every day. So First and foremost, we got to get along on this. There's more of a distance to that in the national sense, but and less of a distance to that in your community sense. That you are all on this same ship that's floating your community or not, and the proximity of seeing people is important and guides you. It's funny. There are all these great stories in your book, Our Towns. Of, I mean, I guess you visited what 25 cities a lot, and then another nearly 25 cities somewhat less. And part of the challenge is you can write this in a book, and obviously this has engendered a lot of conversation, and both of you have been talking and speaking and traveling and talking and speaking and traveling since the book came out. But it's very hard to get these stories into sort of national airwaves and, and national print. I mean, we've talked about the challenge of, in today's world, you can write a really compelling story about renewal in Stockton or Fresno or challenges that communities in West Virginia or Sioux Falls are facing. And it could be a great story and it can go up on the Atlantic or the New York Times, but you do one story about Donald Trump and it gets 50 times the attention. I mean, maybe there is no answer to this and you've written a book and the book did very well. And, the, and at the time that your book was on the bestseller list, I think in June, 
there were two other books that were sort of talking about, hey, there's another way of looking at the world and maybe things are not going to hell in a handbasket. There was Stephen Pinker's book and Hans Rosling et al.'s Gapminder. Um, so clearly there's an appetite for this. But is there any way to change the kind of the daily part of it or are we just we're in the world we're in and you're doing the best you can to disseminate a message? So I, I will say yes to all the, the component parts of that question, <laughs> that this is the world we're in. And I know from The Atlantic that if I write anything even three sentences long about Donald Trump, that will get 100 times the traffic of something that is about here. Why, here's why community colleges actually are exciting. They may be part of the solution to uh, some of our, our wealth and poverty or inequality issues now. So th- this is part of the difficulty of our era. On the other hand, we found, compared to any other book I've ever done, Deb and I have both found just a more of a continuing, sustained, even growing interest in in the argument here from across the country. Whereas the months have gone on, the audiences we've gotten have become bigger. And the people who want to say, well, what can we apply this lesson in Arkansas, or can we apply it in Panhandle, Florida, or can we apply it in Moline, Illinois, we keep hearing from an increasing number of these people day by day. So I think that there there is a disjunction between the spectacle-driven part of national news right now, which is consequential but also a spectacle. And what we can feel almost every day is people wanting to have another side of their civic lives and getting around it. So we actually are encouraged by the degree of public attention to this argument. Um, Aren't we, Deb? Yeah. You know, (laughs) one thing that I've been thinking about as we've gone along on this book tour to so many different towns and talked to big groups and little groups, it reminds me of, hang on, Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign, which was all about shaking every hand, meeting every person, and and he won, you know, making an impact or, or a connection one by one to people. And in a way, it's it's not unlike that, that you go to every little place. And then, like Jim says, I think the hunger right now is not to just say, uh, here's another way to to think about this, but rather people saying, tell me about what happened in Greenville, and maybe I can take some ideas away from that. I had an example of that, believe it or not, just this morning when I was over at our local library going to a yoga class, <laughs> and um, I was talking to the guy taking names and was asking him what was the most popular programs in, in the libraries in D.C., and he said, well, yoga is one, um, and kids' programs are another, and then I started telling him about programs in other libraries that we've seen around in the country, and he said, please send me those, send me all those things, because we're always trying to think of new ideas, which is a really typical example of when we talk about specific things right now, the reception that you get to them. This idea of doing a podcast of what could go right is to obviously look at the ways in which things may be moving in a more constructive direction than what many people perceive or feel. But it's also to challenge, you know, the flip side is it's to challenge that perspective and to challenge it in myself and in others. So I wonder, can everywhere really renew itself, right? Aren't there still going to be maybe winners and losers is is too simplistic uh, a way of looking at it. But, you know, I think of a place like Detroit, which is obviously the great incubus of a city that has essentially collapsed and is now may or may not be renewing itself based on people like Dan Gilbert coming in and buying up a lot of real estate and trying to build on this culture of design and innovation and engineering and manufacturing that sort of built the heyday of of auto manufacturing in the United States. 
But part of the challenge of Detroit, right, is that it basically has to find a way to shrink before it can renew. And no one really knows how to shrink. That's not been a familiar aspect of American society, right? How do we, how do, we do less rather than do more? So did you learn anything about that in the sense of, you know, maybe not everywhere is going to work and that's fine, but are there recipes for it? Should everybody actually try? So, so that is a an excellent question and one we've been mulling over, I think, every step along the way, both to challenge what we're seeing and also what are the limits or the possibilities or the extensions of the places that, that do work. Interestingly, there is a kind of model for Detroit, which is there's another Midwestern city whose population has fallen by more than half, but is actually much further along in the recovery uh, process than Detroit, and that is Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh has about half the population it did in its heyday. It seems in much better shape, partly because it has excellent universities. I mean, so does Detroit, but Pittsburgh has put more into its universities. But partly it also has a lot of locally conscious philanthropies from the Mellons and Fricks and Carnegie's and Heinz's and others that were there during uh, Pittsburgh's steel days and still are concentrated on trying to make this as an excellent place for fewer people. Um, I think there are caveats we saw. For example, through most of American history, or at least through post-Civil War history, really, really small towns have been dying out. In at least the central part of the country since the Civil War, every census, most counties have lost population because these settlements of a thousand people have not been able to, to be viable. So there's a certain scale up from that that may be required. We looked at a lot of sort of paired examples like um, Burlington, Vermont versus Plattsburgh across the lake, which is not done as well, or Greenville, South Carolina versus its neighbor Spartanburg and Riverside, California versus San Bernardino. And there are factors of circumstance and right and wrong uh, choices along the road. So uh, yes, the contradictory realities apply here, too. There are stories that work and stories that are, are disappointing. And we're trying mainly to say here are some examples of not a sort of cookbook best practices, but patterns you can see in places that are getting ahead of their problems and patterns you can see that seem to lead to dysfunction. You know, it's interesting in that observation, right, in China, while there's been a huge amount of American angst about the hauling out of manufacturing and certain jobs going either to Mexico or to China, which remains a potent memory and theme in contemporary politics. You know, people forget the degree to which manufacturing going from a thriving place where wages went up to a less thriving place where wages were lower first began from you know north to south or north to west in the United States. So you have all these towns in the northeast in the United States that were manufacturing hubs in the late 19th century that were basically eviscerated when furniture and shoes, which were made in northern Massachusetts, went to North Carolina or went to the south. Um, so you've had that process for a while. And some of those places, though, never really recovered. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yes, uh, exactly. And my theory of American history is that it's, <laughs> it's one economic dislocation after another. You know, in any decade of U.S. history, you even see, either see some international scale disruption hitting the U.S. economy or some uh, local or, or national scale disruption. The mill towns of New England going to the south and from the south onto other places. And uh, in my hometown in California, which was a little more Anglo than Latino, but most of the Anglo families had left the south or Midwest during the Dust Bowl or the post-World War II shifts. And the Latino families had mainly come after dislocations in Mexico. And so this is the saga of our country. And there are patterns of communities that are better and worse in repositioning themselves. This is part of the Appalachian tragedy right now, too. It is interesting with the Appalachian tragedy because um, Charleston, West Virginia, is another town that has lost a huge chunk of its population from, what, 80,000 to 50,000 mm -hmm. or so. We were there in 2014, and we were there again this past summer wondering what we would find, and the changes were were very interesting and very positive, and I think pointed to two factors that we've seen in a number of towns that are part of the ingredients for moving in a positive direction, and that is, I'm going to say three factors, leadership, imagination, and a really strong sense of what are the local assets. You know, you got to have leaders, that's for sure, and you never know who they're going to be. I mean, anybody from the mayor to the minister to a teacher to an artist or in the case of Charleston, West Virginia, it's, it's a guy named Larry Gross who does mountain stage um, radio production, and he's one of the leaders there. And imagination is getting out of the past in Charleston, for example, of coal, if you can accept that, in, in the chemical industry, into something that is really surprising. It, this is where a sense of who they are comes into play, that Charleston is actually a beautiful place. Who would say that? You know, it's not the first thing that comes to your mind because it's Appalachia. But people who live there and people who go there and see it through the eyes of local people can believe it when they say, we should be as attractive to tourists as Burlington, Vermont. It's a beautiful place here. We've got the hills, we've got the river, we've got great recreation and so forth. So one of the things that, that they're doing is building this ginormous set of athletic fields and are already set to sponsor big national invitationals to, I think it was, soccer tournaments that, that are going to bring in a vast amount of money to the area. Imagining moving from coal and chemicals to tourism and beauty and an actual way to get there through these sports events is an example that only would work in Charleston because they know who they are, but takes this kind of leadership and imagination to actually move in that direction. 
So I once wrote a column called The Edgy Optimist, and my point of it was in a culture where you know people are negative, you should point to the positive. But it was also with the anticipation that at some point the culture could become positive and you ought to have somebody who also says, hey, wait a minute. So if I sound like I'm pushing back on you, it's more from the perspective of the way in which I try to push back also on myself when I go too far in these directions or maybe not far enough. So Pittsburgh is a great example. And it's definitely true Pittsburgh was rusted and collapsed and the late 70s and early 80s. I only know that because I saw Flashdance a few times. And that's what I was paying attention to was the, the empty warehouses and, and not to Jennifer Beals. But there is this, you know, question of lots of places have tried to sort of renew themselves and come up short. So you've got Rochester and Buffalo and Syracuse, I mean, all of which have advantages and I'm probably doing better than they were. But can every town... I mean, your example, Deb, of, of Charleston saying, okay, we've got beauty, tourism, and we can host sports events. Absolutely brilliant. A lot of other places are saying, hey, we have cheap real estate in a downtown area that has long ago fallen into disuse. So we should gussy up these warehouses and do sort of a neo-we-work renovation and make ourselves a hub for tech entrepreneur innovation because 20-somethings can have cheap rent and you can develop these things anywhere. I mean, can everywhere succeed on that? I mean, can a thousand flowers bloom, or are we being a little too optimistic about the fact that some places really are just going to have their best days be behind them and people are going to move on? There are, again, the story of America's whole history has, has included regions rising and falling because there are industries that are, you know, the Erie Canal made a profound difference for upstate New York, and there's nothing right at the moment which is having the same influence on upstate New York, although, uh, you know, the Great Lakes regions in general, they know that waterfront property is going to be actually a more important asset as time goes on. So, of course, you know, no simple idea can work every place. And of course, uh, things are falling at the same time they're, they're rising. I guess the main point we wanted to convey is that there is more of the there is more going on in more places than most people think and that that we were surprised that the modal answer we found we went to really difficult places like San Bernardino which is uh, I'm from the next door town of, of Redlands which is a really really troubled town in California even there they've been in bankruptcy for years and their downtown was destroyed when the interstate highway moved away to a different town and they had other problems even there they have a sense that things are better when they were four or five years ago the two points I'd make is there are big national trends which at different times have been really bad for American towns. For example, the suburban sprawl trend of the 1950s through 1980s was bad for most American downtowns. You still see its, its devastating effects. There's a contrary trend going on now, which is that most downtowns are finding themselves relatively more attractive than they were 15 years ago for residents, for downtown life, for shopping and all that. So that's a positive trend. And the United States is sort of uniquely well positioned in having the possibility of a of what I've called a sort of archipelago of interior activity that compared with any other big country, the U.S. has all its sort of really big world-scale cities like Chicago and Atlanta and Dallas and Denver, you know, right below the, the five or six biggest ones. And then you have Des Moines and Sioux Falls and uh, Charlotte and a lot of others below that and Phoenix. And you have probably 100 cities that are of scale 
to really be attractive places for almost any kind of work. And so for real estate reasons and others, we saw some vitality returning to those places. So not every place, but a lot of places. One other thing that is close to my heart is that maybe there's a a third alternative here for a lot of towns where they're not going to really thrive and flourish, but they're also not going to disappear and fade away but rather they're going to survive and it might be a slightly better way than it was before. And I will dare to talk about the hometown where I grew up, which is in Vermilion, Ohio. It's in the Rust Belt. It's between Cleveland and Toledo. It's between Lorraine and Sandusky. And when I grew up, it was between the Ford assembly plant and the GM plant. The Ford plant and the steel mill are, the Ford plant is gone. The steel mill is shrunk. The GM plant is pretty much gone. Um, And my town of 10,000, when I was growing up, still has 10,000 people. It has done a little bit of the WeWork business, actually not the WeWork, but fixed up the downtown Main Street, and it has gone toward tourism, and it looks a whole lot prettier. But there isn't a sign yet of great new, say, um, it's right on the lake, so maybe there should be some technologically sophisticated marine biology startup going on there, but there isn't. There's a new restaurant that has offspring of other restaurants, and it's closer to Cleveland than it used to be because of the, quote, new highway, so you get more tourism. But it's not thriving. It's not disappearing. It's not limping along. It's kind of moving along a little bit better the version of itself than it was when I was growing up. So is that okay? Yeah, I think, I think that's okay, and I think that's destiny for a lot of places. So there. I, absolutely. I mean, it, there's definitely got to be a space for okay being okay. So I wonder, at, we've kind of avoided, and I think the book avoids in a very healthy way, part of the national discussion, which is actually to show, as you talked about with China and as you both observed in the U.S., there's a lot more stories than we have for the bandwidth of a very simplistic national conversation or national politics. But I wonder if there's a way of national policy as well as some national resources supporting local innovation and change in that we we don't do a very good job of this now. I mean, we have a highway bill, which is kind of a, a way to distribute money to localities pro rata. We are able to spend aggressively in ways that are not evenly distributed when there's natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey or Florence. You know, we can marshal resources that aren't shared in times of emergency and disaster. Uh, but otherwise, we're not very good at it. Do you see any way in which that might change? Or could you have, like, have a national program that distributed either with tax breaks or public-private partnerships helping all these thousand flowers to bloom without necessarily discriminating against one or for another? You know, we actually saw a lot of illustrations of the way that either national government programs or nationwide programs that were private or NGO could have diversifying, uh, you know, locally uh, conscious effects. One of them, for example, is that it's just amazing, and I think you and I have discussed this before, Zachary, of, of how much of the public architecture of the U.S. in the early 21st century was laid down in a few years in the 1930s by the WPA. And you find these lovely, the, the, one of the gymnasium in the high school I went to California was built by the WPA and bridges and concert halls and all that. Uh, libraries, the same way 
wave of Carnegie and other driven libraries across the country, which are suited to local conditions but had a nationwide impetus. In rural Arizona, we saw the um, modern version of the Civilian Conservation Corps, some AmeriCorps teenagers and young people in their 20s who were doing all sorts of locally driven, locally imagined work, but they had come from all around the country. We saw in the Farm Belt and the Midwest ways that, that nationwide investment in GPS technology or the land-grant universities or agricultural science had made things flourish. So I guess um, we saw city-by-city locally inventive and locally sensitive ways to bring public arts, libraries, science, schooling, et cetera, to, to support those things in general and let local people tweak them in the ways that suited the local circumstance. I mean, do you hear whisperings of local congressmen or some sort of national... I don't know. I have no idea what that project would be, right, or what it would look like. But that would. So, that... I'll give you my hopeful political reading of the time ahead of us, which is that we're saying that in the parts of people's brains that involve national politics now, they feel pretty distressed. But in the parts of their brains and their experience that is involved in their own communities, their own businesses, their own families, they've seen lots of illustrations of creative and positive ways to do things. And maybe just imagine if a few years from now, 10 years from now, somebody or some group who had been uh, schooled in those local processes could rise to national prominence, either in the Senate or running for president, saying, look, we're, we're better than all this nonsense we've been going through. We actually, we've seen ways we can do things without fighting over them. Yes, we have differences in political outlook, but there's all these positive things that Americans of this era are actually doing. Let's find ways to, to promote more of those. So that's my, isn't it pretty to think so, uh, vision of future history. And do you share that, Deb? I'm not sure, but I'm thinking of a couple whispers that um, we've heard. And I don't know if this qualifies into, you know, a national movement, but maybe it's a movement that can be replicated nationally and inexpensively, and that is the combination of skills training and in areas where that's really necessary. Nursing is a a great uh, employment track for people who are looking for, you know, a, a respectable, honorable, okay-paying, great-for-the-world means of employment, and immigrants, by the way. Um, so you start out as an RN, and it's much better for the medical world in general and for outcomes and for people if you get, can get those registered nurses to have a BS in nursing. They're better trained. They're better paid. They will eventually do better work. There are beginnings of apprenticeship programs where nurses can can go to um, community colleges or get college credit or get credit for the apprenticeship work that they're doing, just kind of making it easier so, like, you don't have to interrupt either your employment or spend a lot of money on your education, but you can move yourself up into a different category. So I think some models like that of creative education in professional fields where it's necessary and where it will end up doing good for the country and good for all those individual people is, um, is one kind of model that we have started to see. And maybe that, there will be a viral effect uh, in a good way of something like that. Well, let us hope so. I want to thank both of you, Jim and Deb, for talking to me today. But I want to thank you more for taking the time to 
learn what's going on in all these places and to tell these stories that are so invisible from a national perspective, even if they are utterly dominant at a local perspective, and trying to help us sit with multiple truths simultaneously to appreciate that there's a national story that may not be a local story and that there are local stories that may not be our national story. And those can be both true. We can sit with contradiction and sit with several things going on at once and learn to embrace that, but more to the point, really pay attention to what's going on at a much more granular level. I am sure this is the beginning of a conversation and not the end. (laughs) Well, we really appreciate what you're doing in this vein, uh, Zachary, and we're grateful and honored to be on your show now. Yeah, thanks. It's, It's been fun, and this whole project has been fun. So thank you. Thank you both. So that was as illuminating a discussion as I had hoped for. Obviously, we've only touched on all the stories that that Jim and Deb actually tell in their book, not to mention the hundreds or thousands of other stories that they couldn't possibly have told because they only could visit in five years the amount of places that they did visit. I think the most crucial thing when we think about the world is that we yearn for the simplicity and reductiveness of one story that's ours, ours nationally, ours locally, ours that is simple. And if anything, what Jim and Deb show and what hopefully these conversations show is that there can be multiple stories at any given time, not all of which are in sync with each other and are in harmony with each other. There can be terrible crises around opioids and high unemployment in some regions, and there can be thriving dynamic economies and ecologies of society in others, and those can be true simultaneously. And if we lose sight of the stories that are constructive, because we're so focused on the stories that are destructive, we tend to preclude, I think, the possibility that we are solving our problems and the awareness that our energies can make a difference if we are so focused only on one story. And even if that story is true, the relentless focus on it tends to obscure, depress, and preclude action. So if anything, the stories in our towns and the stories hopefully in these conversations that I'm having with a lot of different people can help broaden our sense of what is happening, broaden our sense of what is possible, broaden our sense of what is probable. Until next time, this is What Could Go Right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.